I, this will be my third show of really just like following the outline mm. and with this new felt board that we've built to help illustrate the four noble poops and, and the cycle of the show going over the four noble poops four times, mm-hmm. um, in, in four different realms of application. Hi, I'm Clement Liu. Welcome again to Just Sustainability, serious conversations about sustainability, equity, and social justice. Before we get to the episode proper, I should note, given the topics that Sean and I spoke about, this conversation was recorded in January 2020, well before we realized that COVID was a thing. Now onto the show. First learner Sean Schaffner, who's known as the Puru, from a normally rather straight-faced and stoic colleague who excitedly regaled me with a story about meeting a funny and charismatic character who performed a one-man show at the University of Michigan about poop. I wasn't sure how I should describe Sean to give you all a good sense of who he is and what he does, but upon reflection, I think he can be well described as a sort of itinerant monk wandering the countryside, enlightening the masses about the dharma of poop. Sean wears many hats. He's a performance artist who creates avant-garde theater pieces about literal and metaphorical poop. He's an expert on the history of public sanitation. He's a purveyor of fine scatological puns. And underlying it all, he's a facilitator of difficult conversations about sustainability, wellness, and being queer. He's also beautifully irrepressible, so my interview with him started well before I was ready. Uh, More specifically, our chatter prior to the formal beginning of the interview ended up revealing a lot about who Sean is and how he thinks about the world. In particular, it captures his emphasis on mindfulness as being the key for how we should relate to one another in the world, and so I opted to include it in this episode. Yeah, so yeah. it sounds like you have a like a, a fun West Coast adventure coming up. Like how long and where? Next week, next Tuesday, I will fly to Los Angeles. I'll be in LA for a week mm. where there will be a show and a wedding. And then um, I will go to Portland for a week. I'll ride the train, which is an overnight, like a 31-hour train to um, that's supposed to be beautiful, to yeah. Portland. Do a week in Portland with like a whole spate of things. We'll have the house show at um, Kailash Eco Village on February 21st, that Friday, and then the 22nd, a screening of Flush, yeah. with hopefully an, a robust panel conversation of local wastewater and sanitation experts. Um, and then uh, a How the Potty Trained Us, my like, keynote performance that mm. evening. And then I'll go up to Seattle on Tuesday, the 25th. And I and I can say all this to you without looking at my calendar because I have typed these numbers <laughs> so many times this morning while writing emails to people in Portland being yeah. like, can you join the panel? I know it's like three weeks away. Ha! Ah, you know, what do you think? Um, nice to meet you. Um, and, uh, and, and in Seattle and as well. So anyway, then four days in Seattle. And then I'll take the train from Seattle to New York, which is a oh, wow. four-day train. Yeah, three night. yeah, no, so I've taken the train from... Uh... See from uh, New Haven out to uh, St. Cloud, and that's an adventure. So I mm-hmm. just imagine uh, from uh, Seattle to New York that that's that's a that's a super adventure. And I've done the Washington to Minneapolis line, um, which is basically like the first night, the first two days, mm-hmm. if you will, when you're heading. Um, you get on at like six, and then in New York or in DC, it's about the same thing. And then mm-hmm. you get to Minneapolis after like a four or five hour break in um chicago you get into minneapolis at like 9 10 p.m 
Mm-hmm. Um, that was my first overnight. And then the two overnight to Denver, I'm trying to stop flying. You know, it yeah. just feels like a thing to do and it's hard. And I am not totally sure if I want it to be the hill that I am ready to die on. Yeah. Um, and of course, as somebody who like cares a lot about the environment and tries to, to live, um, closely as possible, I wrestle with a lot of judgment and, yeah. and for people who, for whom those are not their values. Um, and, and when I'm, you know, when, when, for me anyway, to be doing something that kind of extreme, it's like, well, most people are not willing to do that. You know, even like my boyfriend who wants to compost with me and like maybe move to the country one day is, right. um, you know, is like, I, I can't do that. Um, you know, like I, I rely on the hour long flight that it takes me to get to my mom and I travel for work all the time. Like you have a, you don't have a real job. <laughs> that's not actually what he says, but that's, you know, <laughs> how I project it to sound. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's true. Like not everybody has the luxury of four days on the train. And I, and that's why I'm flying there because if I were to take the train to a, also, yeah. I would, <laughs> it would, I would be in LA for less time it took me to get there. And that I feel like is part of the shift in yeah. trying to travel slower. That's actually interesting to me. It's like, yeah. spend more time in places or yeah. accepting that traveling is part of the journey and that the traveling might take as long as the actual trip. Yes. Both things that like, Let's respect the, in the same way that local food is trying to unearth, if you will, or, um, daylight the distance between where food is grown and us and all the labor it takes to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, like a six hour trip to, to Los Angeles makes it, it's just a different metric for measuring how far away something is, you know? Right. Because actually, like when you take the train, you go, wow, it's really fucking far. You know, um, <laughs> no, no I, yeah, one, one does really appreciate that because, uh, right, that the when I really appreciated how big the United States was, was when I took that that train that time from mm. New Haven to uh, St. Cloud. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's just, I mean, right, I've driven chunks of it, but I never just sort of, right, sat somewhere and just sort of looked around for the, the nearly 30 hours <laughs> it took to do yeah, it. Yeah, right. I mean, I've done the, you know, I was driving for most of all of October 2018 to February, middle mm. of February 2019, minus like one, one flight I did in the middle, um, to, uh, California again from, from Albuquerque, which actually was like a huge, my intention had been to drive all the way to California and sort mm. of end there. And then the timing just got moved around and it was actually like a, a liberating moment for me of, looking at my schedule in early December, I believe, and being like, how am I going to get to California and realizing the only way I'm going to get to California by driving is to like drop all the time. And that's not why I'm doing this. And um, so there is also maybe to complicate the travel question is like, how do we enrich that time more? Interestingly for Amtrak, not necessarily to their credit, but not, not to their deficit either. Most of these trains are not outfitted with Wi-Fi. So, no. so in order to use <laughs> the wireless, I've had to go on, um, my phone and tether. And, um, that's okay for someone who's on a family plan, <laughs> you know, with my parents right. paying my phone bill maybe, but, um, I don't know that that's okay for, for everybody to be able to do. And like, but it does say if you're going to be on the train, you're, you're going to be looking, you know, or you're going to be reading or you're going to be 
there's something enriching, I think, with your time that you're being encouraged to do and to know, to trust, like you said, that the beauty itself is, um, is enriching. But at the same time, as going back to this California, uh, trip thing, it was like, what is the, what is the point of this? And if we're traveling just to get somewhere, then in essence, we are, we're never arriving. You know, it's a part of a larger mentality of, of, um, feeling like we're always, um, reaching towards a destination as opposed to being part of the journey. Right. Obviously you can do that on a plane or on a train or anywhere. You can be like mindful and engaged with what's happening. But, um, but anyway, again, it's, it's, it's also why I don't necessarily feel like it's the one I want to die on because we're so dependent on flight travel in, um, in the country in modern day. And, and I actually, the, the, if I can go on about this, even as I said, I was done the, the statistic that really changed or opened my eyes around this was one in five people in the world will fly and in their lifetime, you know, and like to, to really take in the amount of emissions that my lifestyle is putting out as opposed to it's overly complicating for like, there are so many ways in which our consumptive lifestyle Mm -hmm. ranks us insanely into how much resources we take compared to someone who lives um in the world majority you know uh-huh. and is considered globally poor uh-huh. um so for me to or globally to, average yeah yeah that's true that's true right right like we're in the global i'm in the global one percent you right. know um that's right that's right thank you for that um so so for them to really also bear the burden a lot of the times of what climate change causes is um Make, just makes me feel bad. The Swedish mm-hmm. had a name for it. They, there's a name for flight shame right now. Mm-hmm. And, and I think also the guilt of taking a plane. Yeah. Uh, they're developing particulars for it. Um, do you know what it is? But it's also complicated. Oh, go ahead. No, no. I said, do you know what it is? I don't know what the word is. Oh, I don't. That's uh, otherwise I wouldn't have used it because it's, I'm sure it's fun <laughs> to say, you know, yeah. I can look it up right now. It's like Jagertsfigen or something. <laughs> um, can't do two things at once, so I'll just be able to look this up. Flight shame. Uh, flight scum. That's what ah, it's called. Okay. That's, I don't know how, if that's actually how it's said. That's my guess. Um, <laughs> but, you know, as somebody who's really committed to doing things that are quote unquote better for the environment, A, it's like mine already, you know, yeah. and, and it's easy to make choices that are like, hooray for this organic asparagus without realizing that it's coming from Peru and you can get a perfectly delicious asparagus that's actually more organic than what the label organic is allowed to really say these days mm-hmm. from your local farmer, um, where it actually didn't, you know, go through all that labor. And I can point to the things I didn't buy and therefore like, you know, I'm, I'm taking my money away from the airline and I think that's valuable and putting it into Amtrak is even more valuable because it's a massively struggling, um, business and, and, um, which is, a lot of the federal government's problem also because it's a federally funded entity. Um, and it's about the dismantling of the trains in the thirties by oil cars, etc. cetera. Um, so it's, it's a broader issue, but, um, I forgot what the end was where I was driving towards. Oh, but I can't like, I can point to a, a dumpster full of cups that I personally didn't use by bringing my own mug and like, the and see back the ramifications of that maybe there's a tree maybe there are three trees that are still standing because of my jar usage over the last like 10 years yeah. um 
but just but not buying a ticket on that plane the plane still flies and 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 it's I, it's not clear to me that there's a direct effect of that and that and that again that's part of why like maybe this is not the thing to um to rest all my my laurels on but it has made me think more seriously about you know how and when to fly and to be really just mindful of it where possible. Okay, that's it. Wow, soapbox, soapbox, soapbox. <laughs> I think it's perfect. I think, right, well, this might have been just sort of us chatting. I think I'm actually going to keep this in. Sean and I eventually got to the business at hand and began the formal part of our interview. When I asked him to introduce himself to all of you, this is what he said. Would you please introduce yourself? How would Sean Schaffner describe Sean Schaffner to whoever might be listening to this? Oh, thanks, Clement. It's so good to be on with you. Um, and thanks for having me. My name is Sean Schaffner, as you said. And how would I describe myself? Ooh, someone gave me the term recently, holy fool. Okay. And, um, and I really liked that a yeah. lot. Um, and I do think that's some of what I'm trying to do. I'm impish and curious, um, and, uh, very friendly. And I, lo- I like to think that people think I'm kind, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but also a little sassy and, mm-hmm. uh, funny. Um, and I am a taboo breaker. I feel like, um, and, and I, I think that term holy fool makes sense to me because it, you know, the jester also wears a crown. Um, and, and they're sits on the throne? Be, well, I suppose so. We'll sit on the throne, you know, and he sits on the throne certainly when the king or queen is not there. Right. <laughs> um, and they're the, the, the one person in some way who's allowed to mock the king. Um, and, and my, and, and because at the same time as I can be like wry and, and poking at our taboos and kind of like embarrassing people with, um, you know, like making poops out of mud on stage mm-hmm. or asking people to do kegels altogether. Um, <laughs> because I run a company called the Poop Project, the People's Own Organic Power Project that gets people talking about poop. But I've also made shows about race and, um, white supremacy and, um, uh, and, and, promoting other, um, you know, body and, um, uh, sort of taboo issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, there's a necessity to prying people open with humor, but then there's also, um, you know, I, I have been a ritual facilitator for years mm-hmm. in Jewish settings and, and more and more in Buddhist and mindfulness things. And so that's really integrated into my work too. Mm-hmm. And, and my background is as a theater performer. So, um, I, I also believe that when we make people laugh, we open the heart and then, we have the ability when people are vulnerable to really hit them uh, in (laughs) the nicest of ways with consent, (laughs) you know? And I guess I I regret that language on on the one hand, because I think it's also about hugging them and holding their hearts. Um, And it's about hitting them in the sense of like, we got to wake up. There's a lot of stuff going on. Um, There's a lot of, if I can use an expletive shit that needs to be addressed. And, and a lot of what the poop project is about certainly is about the environmental and um, cultural and body positive and globally health um, necessary uh, needs of, of re-understanding and reintegrating our, our poop into our world and into the way we think about our resources and our bodies and accepting this reality, you know, but along with that is all the other, um, again, like shit, even to say the word is taboo. Um, but, but by making something taboo, we say, let's not talk about this. And when we do that, we prevent things from moving forward. Because unless we can name it, unless we can talk about it, we can't solve issues. Um, right. 
So, so that's a lot of what I want to do. Ooh, and I love to talk. You're just gonna, you're gonna be like, wow, that guy talks a lot. Um, I feel like a bird sometimes, you know, a bird, a bird sings and they just sit in the tree and they sing. And if mm-hmm. someone's around, they're, they're there to hear them. And if not, like, I believe that bears do shit in the woods and I believe that trees make sounds when they fall, regardless of who's there. And so I spent a day laughing at my own jokes and, you know, trying out material for me. Um, but, and if people are there, all the better, you know, because I'm a, a very passionate communicator. After Sean introduced himself, I asked him to tell me about why he focused so much of his life's work on poop. Sean's response to my question contained a number of elements. These include, one, that poop is something common across the human experience. That is, we all poop. Uh, two, that poop is something that we often are not comfortable talking about. And three, thinking about poop highlights the importance of tackling the taboo topics that we don't like talking about. Insofar as ignoring poop has environmental and public health impacts. Here's what Sean said. In addition to being uh, a holy jester, is it the way you put it? You're also mm-hmm. the, right, the, the self-proclaimed puru, I think. I think it's self-proclaimed, right? Or did someone yeah. dub you the puru? Well, as soon as you start calling me the puru, then it's, it's more than me, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, You're the generally uh, acknowledged puru. <laughs> yeah. Uh, generally acknowledged guru. It's true. This is one of the things. If anyone is like, how do I start a business? I'll tell you the answer. Get a good graphic designer and a website. And if yeah. you go out somewhere in public, have a banner that's right. printed by someone and it looks nice. It's really something about like, you know, having the trappings, having the artifice that makes people believe it's, it's about why stories matter, you know, yeah. because you tell a good story and people will follow you wherever you're going. Yeah. Um, so, so I, I'm going to butt in and ask, tell me the story about poop. You talk a lot about poop. Uh, why poop? Why is poop that hook that you use? And what do we learn from poop? Oh boy. I mean, I hope we have a few hours. Um, we all poop. Everybody poops. I have a body. You have a body. If you're listening to this, you have some way to hear it. Um, mm. or audio transcribe, read it and, um, or experience it in another way. And, and we're only able to do that because we have a body and we know that these bodies need sleep. They need, um, air that is clean to breathe. They need water that is clean to drink food that is nourishing to eat. Um, they need shelter and they need a, a safe and dignified place to shit. Mm-hmm. And I do use that word, um, a, because like there's an element of redeeming that expletive, but also I think that, um, shit's kind of gross and that's part of the problem around why we don't want to talk about it. But a lot of my research has led to the understanding that, that we live in one of the most societies about the, or, or a society that has some of the most shameful feelings about poop. Well, really since Victorian England and before that for like thousands of years, at least, you know, a good, like, um, 2000. Mm-hmm. And, and part of that is, um, our disgust, the art part of that is that our disgust leads our neglect. Mm-hmm. So we don't think about the way that poop affects us and we just pretend not to talk about it. We've made it taboo. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like the origins of our society are, are really Victorian. And if you go back to the 1830s or so, um, you have a scenario where most of the people we, um, I don't know where it'll come, but in, in the sequence of how we've actually been talking live, it was this, we're thinking about people in the global majority. Um, and similarly, like the majority of, uh, England or London at that time, um, didn't have much. They, 
they used communal um thing. They lived communally, they they might live close to their animals, they lived in very crowded quarters. Um often the wealthy did too. Um but the 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 average person would be, you know, pooping in a bucket and then throwing that bucket out their window or sloughing it onto the street. And then when it would rain, it would sort of get driven into the, the lake, uh, or I'm sorry, not the lake, the river Thames, along with everything else. And around this time, rich people, or a little bit before then, the aristocracy, the rising bourgeois, uh, merchant class, etc., had begun to invest in infrastructure that could more easily bring water straight into their homes rather than going for the well, and also uh, to take that water back out of their homes. The water closet was invented by Sir John Hinton in 1596. Though, like, there's older versions that are as far back as, like, Minoan societies pre-common era um, and the birth of, of Jesus. But um, but in the modern era, if you will, this is the first time that this is happening, 1596. He gives, like, a, a version to him. He makes a version for himself. He publishes this book, The Metamorphosis of Ajax, which is, like, a joke because a jakes is a word for toilet. And then he gives one to the queen of England. It's not clear. She's like, he's like her godson. Um, and he write, yeah, it's not clear that anybody ever uses the toilet except for him. And it like, I think partly because people think, yeah, our toilet smell and this is using water as a solution, but like, we don't really care. And it's too much work to bring things in. But around the 1830s, this work to do the plumbing becomes less and it's starting to be fashionable. So now for a wealthier person, not, before they were like hiding their, their, um, poop bucket inside of like a, what looked like a chest of drawers or a chair that simply opened up and then would allow you to do your business in some privacy. But again, for the average person, pooping was not a private act. It was something that was often happening, you know, like you're in your bedroom. You don't have a bathroom. You have a pot. So like maybe you're on the other side of your bed, <laughs> but <laughs> you probably share that bed with four people, <laughs> you know, so like there's just not a lot of that going on. Um, and, uh, so these people are, are beginning to consecrate, if you will, this, this, um, shamefulness around the body. And, and more broadly, this is all research or, or some of this comes from Norbert Elias's, um, civilization, history of civilization, a history of manners, one of these. <laughs> and, um, and he's charting the way that etiquette manuals describe how one is to behave around poop and pee from like the 15th century on. And you see that even, regulations for the court in like the 1500s they're saying things like don't don't just poop behind the in the staircase or behind the curtains go to the the prescribed place jesus you know like so so this is all to say that even for the aristocracy 100 like 200 300 years before this was not the mainstay of culture but recently hiding it had grown more and more the case along with like not grabbing the food with your hands, washing yourself so that you don't smell and are covered in dirt, <laughs> um, not sharing the bed with people, using a handkerchief, rubbing your nose on your hand. Um, so come the 1830s, this, this taboo really reaches its epitome. And if you are like a family person, a lady specifically, going to a ball later that night, you're probably going to take a laxative during the morning because there's not going to be any facility for you at night. And that's both like a challenge because you probably have a maid who's there who can help to like hold a Baudelaire, a urinary device under you and like pulling down your, your long bloomers, but it's a lot of work and it's just like going to the Oscars these days, you know? <laughs> and secondly, um, you, they're, they're the public society, the polite society does not want to acknowledge that women have bodies and that these bodies 
leak and expel and, you know, do all the things the bodies do. Um, so the, uh, part of the, the problem of all this poop going into the Thames and being just like around the streets is, is a total public health crisis. Um, and lots of disease and, um, cholera, yellow fever, typhus, etc. So, so the bacterial revolution and the understanding of why that's happening, uh, along with the technology converges in around 1858 with what's called the great, when a very hot summer in, in England causes the Thames to, to smell <laughs> and the parliament finally decides to do something about it. And around this time, like bacteria theory is on the rise, but miasma theory was still hanging around. And that was the idea that you could get sick from the smell of things. So there was an earth closet, which was a way to dispose of poo, basically in a composting toilet, as we call it today, where you're pooping into dirt um, or sawdust or something, and then you're covering it over with that same material, um, or with the, like not the same from inside, but a, another um, a cup full of straw or sawdust or wood shavings. Um, but at the time, because it was felt like because of the, the lingering miasma uh, theory that we should be sending the poop away. So it was put into these, these pipes and then like brought into what eventually became wastewater treatment plants. And because it was a public health emergency, sewering affected the whole city. And suddenly the, the sort of proletariat with their pooping everywhere habits were, were given toilets and asked to become part of not only a sewering city, but a bourgeois body politic. And the, the politic of secrecy that the flush toilet enabled and proliferated. Mm -hmm. Um, and at this time, you know, the city suddenly becomes clean. There's no like poop on our cities. Horses are, are starting to be eliminated eventually with, uh, cars. So like mm -hmm. the whole, the idea of the city also becomes clean. And now everyone, not just the wealthy are getting kitchens with indoor plumbing and bathrooms with indoor plumbing. So suddenly the house itself becomes reflective of the body in a way that mm -hmm. it didn't before. Where like before, a lot of people's dwellings was more like an amoeba that had one hole where like things come into it and they come out the same hole. You know, everything gets digested inside. Um, but, but when we become a part of a sewered system, we're sort of plugging our human bodies, which in essence are also sewered into the, the domestic body of the, of the building structure and into then the, the global, um, urban infrastructure body, which itself is housed by, you know, the nature body that sort of made all of us to begin with. We've reached a point that's a good place to end this episode. To review, in the first part of our conversation, Sean and I spoke about several topics. First, in discussing Sean's travels and the decisions he has to consider in regards to how he travels, we talked about mindfulness and its importance for sustainability. Sean also spoke about why he's so focused on the topic of poop, and in telling us about that, told us about the importance of talking about taboo topics. Next episode, we'll return to my conversation with Sean Schaffner. More specifically, we'll listen to Sean and I consider sewers and other infrastructure involved in dealing with poop, as well as poop as a metaphor for a broader range of difficult topics of discourse. Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute in the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening.